Well, if you can, I'd like you to try to picture this scene. Um, Peter and John, in a story that we talked about last week, have just healed a man who's been crippled from birth. He's so thrilled, this man is, that he begins to walk and jump and praise God and gets the attention of everyone. And so Peter began to speak to a crowd who had gathered around them. He said, I didn't heal this man. It was the power of Jesus risen from the dead that made this man able to walk. And the atmosphere was electric. Everyone was excited, that is, except for the religious elite, the authorities. And that was especially true when Peter said that some in the crowd were responsible for the death of Jesus. He quickly softened things, though, and said, but you acted in ignorance. You're still guilty. That's the bad news. And then he says, though, but Jesus did not stay dead. Instead, by the power of God, he rose from the dead. And then he tells the crowd assembled there the good news. If you're guilty, he said, repent. Turn to God that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And the crowd was thrilled, that is, again, except for the religious authorities. At this point, they enter the scene. And that's where we pick the story up this week. So what we're talking about began last week and continues on this week in Acts chapter 4. If you'd like to follow along in one of the Pew Bibles, the words are on page 1660, 1660, or you can follow along with the words on the screen. And I'm going to begin reading with verse 1. It says, The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. You can tell a lot about people by what makes them angry. And here, the flashpoint is the apostles' message that Jesus rose from the dead. And the people who are most upset were a group called the Sadducees. Let me just tell you about them and why this made them so upset. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. There was a debate between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection, and Sadducees did not. So when Peter said that Jesus had been raised from the dead they immediately had their backs up. But even more importantly um, is that Peter's message was a threat to their power. The Sadducees had been very clever politicians. They were a small but powerful group of well-connected elites who were closely connected to the Roman authorities. And they had a lot to lose. If Peter and his message about Jesus took hold, they might lose trust with the Romans who used them to try to keep control of the people. They lose their wealth, their power, their prestige. So it's really ironic in some ways that they did not investigate Peter's claims. They were more concerned about holding on to power. They didn't seem to care whether he was telling the truth or not. That happened then, and it happens today. Some reject Jesus not because they've examined the evidence and found it lacking, but because they have an objection that just, on the surface, they don't even want to go there. They don't even want to try to explore Christian faith at all. Now let me just say that I know that not all of you here today are followers of Jesus. And if you've been around here or, uh, even a little or a lot, you know that we're okay with that. What we want to do is to help you to understand what Christian faith is all about. We respect that process of exploration and seeking. But please don't just reject it out of hand without examining it. That's why, as we just heard in the announcements, we offer Alpha here each year. Alpha is a safe, no-pressure way to explore Christian faith. And again, it starts this Wednesday, and if that's where you are, if you want to learn more about Christian faith, maybe you're returning to a childhood faith or exploring it for the first time, the Alpha's for you, so sign up for that. But the Sadducees, unfortunately, were not so honest. 
Instead, they simply tried to stop Peter and John and the others from telling others about Jesus. So they called the temple cops and had them arrested and thrown into jail. For some reason, they thought this would put a lid on things. And as it turned out, they horribly underestimated what God was doing. So in verse 4, we're told that many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Now, I know it seems awkward for us today that Luke only mentions the men who made decisions to follow Christ. That's really just the culture's way of counting. So the number is more than 5,000. It may have been 10,000, 15,000 or more if you factor in women and children. It's possible, from what we know of the population of Jerusalem, that about a third of the people had chosen to be followers of Christ. This is a significant movement that has just sprung up almost overnight. So it's no wonder that the authorities arrested Peter and John. Then they had to try to find a strategy to silence them. So here's what they did. It says the Jewish authorities had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or name did you do this? By what power or name did you do this? Now let me just uh, tell you a little bit about the Sanhedrin that's mentioned here. They were a group of 71 men along with a high priest, uh, presided over by a high priest, they were a really a combination of a Senate and a Supreme Court, kind of all rolled into one. Most, although not all, of the, uh, the Sanhedrin were Sadducees, but they were all respected community leaders, people who owned property and had the right credentials. That said, we know from other historians that they were a group full of corruption and bribery and intrigue. What is really ironic here is that Peter and John find themselves in the same courtroom before the same group of people who presided over the trial that Jesus experienced just a few months before. And their first question for him is, by what power or name did you do this? And it's actually a trick question. During Jesus' lifetime, the authorities accused Jesus of being an agent of Satan. One example of that is in something else that Luke, the author of Acts, wrote in his biography of Jesus that we call Luke, in Luke chapter 11. Jesus had driven out a demon out of someone, and they accused him of being in league with the devil, that he was doing it on the devil's behalf. Jesus forcefully denied their accusation. So here the authorities are implying something similar about what Peter and John are doing, implying that he is in league with the devil, that they're using black magic to heal this, these people. So how did people ha or Peter handle this interrogation? Well, frankly, if you were a gambler, you would not bet on Peter. You would have bet on these religious authorities. Peter had been known to crumble under pressure, most famously when he denied Jesus three times on the night that Jesus was tried. And then he denied simply because of the questions of a slave girl and some ordinary onlookers. So no one would have bet that he was a match for the powerful, educated, and articulate elite. He was a nobody. So you would have thought he is way in over his head. But Peter, Luke tells us, filled with the Holy Spirit, opened his mouth and astounded everyone. With great courage and wisdom and words that Peter didn't even know he had in him, he spoke knowing as he did that he was taking his own life into his hands. Remember, he knew he's before the same group in the same room where Jesus was condemned to death, and he wonders, maybe that's my fate as well. But he shows tremendous courage. Now, he's not reckless here. He's not like a mountain climber going for the summit in bad weather when older, more wiser, um, experienced climbers stay in their tents. Instead, this is reasoned courage. He knows the dangers, but he also knows what needs to be done, and he does it, undaunted by the consequences. 
Here's what he says to the men who are gathered there. He says, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lamed and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by ma to mankind by which we must be saved. Now, in those short number of words, there's brilliance here. Why are we here, he said? Because we did something good, a kindness for a man who's been crippled from birth. It wasn't us who healed him, but Jesus, the very one that you crucified, the one God raised from the dead, he's the one that healed this man. Those seated in the courtroom must have been stunned at Peter's words because here's Peter, the accused, turning the tables on them. In other words, he becomes the accuser and they become the defendants in just a few words. You crucified him, Peter said, but God raised him from the dead, reversing what you tried to do. And then he says salvation is found in no one else. In other words, Jesus is the only one who can save us from our sins. That wasn't a popular idea then, and it's not a popular idea today as well. No one else? No other name, really? Isn't that arrogant and exclusive? Peter was speaking to those who did not believe in the resurrection, and that's true even of some today. And he was speaking to people who had something to lose if he was right and they were wrong. And again, that's true today. So when people suggest that Christians are out of line to point people to Jesus and to say that he is the way, at least there is a way. Who else but Jesus can rescue? There's no one else quite like him. Peter is absolutely convinced of what he's saying. Why? Well, first of all, he spent three years with Jesus. He witnessed his power, his wisdom, day in and day out. He was around also on the day that Jesus was arrested and tried and condemned to death on a Roman cross. It was Peter's greatest failure, but it was Jesus' triumph because on Easter Sunday, Peter was one of the first to see Jesus after he rose from the dead, when the impossible happened. Jesus, the one who gives hope to the hopeless, strength to the weak, courage to the timid, peace to those who are afraid, and eternal life to sinners, is the only one who can meet our deepest needs. And that's who Peter pointed everyone that day to. Now, as much as the men in the room wanted to squash Peter and John and shut them up, they were stunned. Never in a million years would they have expected the speech that came out of Peter's mouth. Bold, courageous, and eloquent, they had to admit that it was special. So it says in verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. Now, unschooled does not mean that they were stupid. It just simply means they had not gone to rabbinical school like those in the Sanhedrin who'd spent years, even decades, studying the intricacies of the Jewish law. And ordinary doesn't mean dumb. They were amateurs, not professional religious leaders. Peter and John didn't have the credentials that many looked for. But academic and professional snobbery aside, they were clearly powerful. But Peter and John weren't about to take credit for anything, either healing the man or Peter's eloquent words. They were under no illusions about the power behind their words and actions. It wasn't them. It wasn't a technique or a program. It was the power of God. And the only explanation that these 71 men in the Sanhedrin could come up with was one that they did not want to admit, and that was that these men had spent time with Jesus. And it rubbed off. 
We have to ask ourselves the question, wouldn't it be great if people looked at us and had the same explanation, that there's no other explanation for the content of our character and the quality of our lives than that we follow Jesus? Instead of impressed that we went to the right schools, that there's something about us that can only be explained by the fact that we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Sure, Peter and the others hadn't been to some Ivy League rabbinical school, but they had been with Jesus. Day in and day out, for three years, they watched his life. They heard him teach and pray, watched him die, and then shockingly come back to life. And those experiences gave them complete clarity and insight. Clarity they would not have had, even, by gain, even gained from years of book learning. Every once in a while, someone will come to me and ask me, uh, they're exploring, perhaps going into ministry as a profession, and they'll ask me for advice. And one of the things I will tell them is, go to grad school, study the Bible and theology. Our youngest daughter wants to be a pastor, and that's what she's doing now. She's in grad school, learning and studying. But I also tell them that the most important thing is not the grad school, but it's staying connected to Jesus. As important as education is, I will take someone deeply connected to Jesus over a Phi Beta Kappa in theology any day. Why? Because even if you have gaps in your theological education, you will respond like Jesus. You'll think like Jesus. And most importantly, love like Jesus. So how do we live that out? How can we do that in our lives? Be with Jesus. Commit to spend time with him. Read his story in the Bible. Pray. Try following his example. Serve others in his name. And you'll find that the time you spent with Jesus will transform you so thoroughly that others will take note that you have been with him. In addition to Peter's powerful speech, the authorities had one more problem in silencing him. And that was, as we see in verse 14, since they could see that the man who had been healed standing there with them, they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing else that they could say. Now, I mentioned this verse last week. Many today are skeptical of miracles. And by the way, they were skeptical then as well. The idea that people in the ancient world were more gullible is just simply not true. Miracles are rare, but they happen. And this is one that I believe. Why? Because if the men in the Sanhedrin could have exposed this as a fraud, they would have. But they couldn't. So in verse 15, they did the only thing they could do. They ordered Peter and John to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, and they conferred together... What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone in, living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in his name. So they're in a box. They couldn't think of a way out, and so uh, they just said, why don't you be quiet? Now you think, all these years later, that the solution actually was a lot more obvious, and that was just to admit that they were wrong. It was impossible to deny that this man had, not been, healed, had been healed, so why don't they just admit it? But if they had, at least from their perspective, then the entire crowd would have gone over to the disciples' side, and they didn't want that. So the only thing they could think of was not to attack the miracle, but to tell Peter and John to stop talking about Jesus. But even as they said this, they must have known that they were just going to fail, and couldn't put the toothpaste back into the tube. So, in verse 18, they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to listen to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. 
After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. So clearly, Peter at this point is not going to stop. And his argument is airtight. If it's a choice between obeying God or obeying you, I'm with God. And there was little that they could say. Peter and John knew that anything the authorities could do to them, even up to killing them, would only last for a moment. But the things of God last forever. What they knew of Jesus, they knew firsthand, and they were willing to stake their lives on him. The threats did not deter them in the least. So what about for us? How do we live this out? Well, we too can be bold and courageous. Peter and John were Christians, and talking about Jesus is what Christians do. In Peter's mind, if Jesus died for you on the cross, if he rose again from the dead, if you've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit to fill you and empower your life, then speak up. Don't worry if you have all the right answers. Pray for boldness and the words you need to tell others about Jesus. Luke doesn't, though, end the story here, but tells us what happens after Peter and John left jail. It says in verse 23, On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So when the authorities let them go, Peter and John went back to uh, the folks that that were the other fellow followers of Christ. And they must have felt like they dodged a firing squad. But they also knew that their problems were not over. They may have survived for a moment, but they also knew that the authorities were not going to give up. What Luke tells us next is how the earliest Christians reacted to their first crisis. So again, Peter and John have a problem. The rich and the powerful want them gone. They've arrested them once. They've warned them. The next time they might not be so lucky. So you, you, you can almost imagine them thinking back over the last three years of their lives from the time that they first met Jesus and wondered, you know, wouldn't it have been better to stay up in Galilee and keep fishing like we had done before? Following Jesus had made their lives more complicated. It made them more difficult, not easier. And that's something that can be true for us as well. There's a myth that's out there that if we follow Christ, everything is just going to kind of magically work out. And in some ways that's true. In fact, there are many ways in which that's true. But it is also true that it can be more complicated and difficult to follow Jesus. And that's what they found. And it was what they expected. So what did they do? What did they do when they got back with their friends? Did they decide to try to hide Peter and John in some faraway place until things blew over? Did they try to help them slip out of town in the dead of night? Or did they hatch a plot to take down the high priest? No, they did none of those. What they did is to pray. And it's a remarkable prayer, one that gives us an important window into the courage and devotion of the very first followers of Jesus. I want to read this prayer in its entirety, beginning with verse 24. It says, They raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, if you listen to that prayer, here's what you did not hear. Here's what they did not pray. 
God, bring down fire from heaven on the high priest and destroy him. Or, please make the Sanhedrin be nice to us. Or even, please stop this persecution. Instead, they did something different. First, they affirmed their confidence in the power of God. You made heaven and the earth and everything in them. They even acknowledged God as the God of history. Even if nations, kings, and rulers oppose him, in the end, God wins. And then they gave a specific example, something they just experienced, by pointing out the way that Herod, Pilate, and the Romans conspired against Jesus and thought they'd won. And even though Jesus went to the cross, God worked his will marvelously, even though in the through the resurrection, even achieving something in the midst of the plans of wicked people. And it's only then, after they've affirmed the power of God and his sovereignty over history, do they make any requests at all. And they make two. The first request is that even if they threaten us, help us to keep speaking out. Again, they weren't asking for their problems to be solved, but for the boldness to keep speaking about Jesus. Their second request is that, that God continue to work through them powerfully. Specifically, help us perform miracles of mercy. Again, their prayer wasn't to defeat their enemies, but to do acts of compassion and kindness. In other words, they prayed for God to spectacularly triumph over the opposition with expressions of love. So the way that they lived it out and the way that we can live this out is with courage to speak boldly and, and, and to do acts of kindness. Peter and John didn't pretend that they could face this pressure on their own. They knew they needed God's power. They didn't first pray that their problems be removed, although they did pray, and I think appropriately pray, that they would have favor and be able to speak out without being threatened. But instead, they said, listen, even if we are threatened, give us the courage to speak out and empower us to do deeds of compassion and kindness for the hurting and needy in the name of Jesus. I believe God is sovereign. And just as the prayer they prayed there uh, said, it says he is. And I believe God can do miracles. Now, I don't pretend to know his will. Sometimes he heals and sometimes he doesn't. And I don't know why. Peter and John here show us that the bigger priority is faithfulness to God no matter what our circumstances might be. Even when we're disappointed, we have to remain faithful. Even when the problems don't disappear, we can ask God for strength to make him look good anyway. And even if we think the people won't like what we say, we can speak up boldly and winsomely about Jesus. Now, as soon as they finished praying, the prayer that I just read, God answered it. And here's the way Luke describes what happened. He says, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So Peter and the others expected to face opposition. They knew that their ultimate battle here wasn't against human authorities. Satan thought that he had won when Jesus died, but God defeated his plan. And so Satan began to shift strategies, started to attack the church. And the same is true of the church today. And I don't just mean the church universal. I mean even churches specifically, including City Church. Whenever we seek to let others know about Jesus and the new life we find in his name and his death and his resurrection, there are forces that will try to do their best to oppose whatever it is we're doing. Acts is the powerful story of a small group of Holy Spirit-inspired leaders who, against all odds, took the good news of Jesus to the entire ancient world. But it's also a story about how, at every turn, they faced opposition. One scholar says of Satan's strategies that if he can't crush the church through opposition, which he tried here, He'll undermine it through doctrinal heresy or divide it through dissension. 
And in this story, Peter and the others were facing direct opposition. But Satan uses all three strategies. He used them then, and he uses them today. Satan doesn't like what we're doing. And when he fights, he doesn't fight fair. What we need to learn is to pray with confidence, just as the Christians did here. Acknowledge that God is in charge. Trust him to give us the strength that we need to be empowered to share the good news of Jesus and to do acts of compassion and kindness in his name. Let's pray. Father, these are uh, ordinary but extraordinary men that we read about here, Peter and John. People that everyone looked at and thought, wow, they do amazing things, but they are incredibly ordinary. We can take hope from that, Lord, because many of us feel very ordinary as well. We don't have maybe all the credentials or all the authority that many may have in our culture, at least some do, but what we have is you. By staying connected to you, we have power that others cannot even imagine. Father, may we be people who speak out boldly and courageously for you, to do so in winsome and appropriate ways, but to do so so that we can give honor and praise to you and to your son Jesus, the one in whom we find life. And may we also do acts of compassion and kindness, showing others the love of God in tangible and concrete ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.